What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji, and it's Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And all month long, we've been bringing you stories about Black resistance. You may have noticed, Code Switch listeners, that it is also the month when the presidential campaign kicks off in earnest. I have noticed. I'm exhausted. Aren't we all? I am so tired. This election cycle has been going on since before I was born. That's how it feels. If it's been going on forever, <laughs> and there's so much election season left, Shireen. Uh, so far, we've only heard from Democratic voters in Iowa and New Hampshire about who they want to be their party's nominee. And those two nominating contests underline one of the trickiest dynamics in the Democratic campaign. These two states that help establish a frontrunner, they are very, very, extremely, totally, not completely, totally, but like 90 (laughs) percent white. Very, very white. And so while white Democrats in Iowa and New Hampshire might go up for people like, you know, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, the national polls show that they have almost no support from black Democrats who will be voting in much browner states that will be having their primaries later. But the viability of all these candidates might ultimately depend on convincing Latinx and black voters to support them. Yeah, and Democratic candidates spending time and money convincing black voters to rally behind them? Gene, Mm -hmm. that was not a thing 75 years ago. It's totally a thing now. It's been a thing, I think, since we can remember. Yes. But it was not a thing 75 years ago. Not at all. There were not that many black Democrats back then because the Democratic Party was the party of white segregationists. This is something Republican talking heads bring up all the time. They like to say stuff like, why do we keep getting called racists when the Democrats were the party of the Ku Klux Klan? Listen, the Democrats are the party of the Ku Klux Klan. The Democratic Party historically has been the party of white supremacy. They're the party of segregation. They're the party of the Ku Klux Klan. Who started the KKK? That was a Democrat. And how about you disavow the Democratic Party for even creating the KKK? There's a lot of truth in that montage because for decades after emancipation in the 1860s, if you were black and you could vote and your right to vote was not being trampled on by, you know, vigilante violence and uh, the law, you were very likely pulling the lever for the GOP. But today, of course... It's black Republicans who might just be the biggest outliers in U.S. two-party politics. Around 9 in 10 black voters cast their ballots for Democrats in presidential elections. And according to the Pew Research Center, the Republican Party is around 1 or 2 percent black. So for this week's Black History Month episode on the theme of black resistance, we're going to tell you why black voters up and left the grand old party. The original Blexit, if you will. I mean, it's something that we really do not see in American political history. That's all after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically? With no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Plus, Discover is accepted at over 95% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when you use your Discover card, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2019 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Support also comes from Rothy's. Rothy's are stylish, sustainable shoes made for life on the go. Carefully crafted from repurposed plastic water bottles, Rothy's are fully machine washable. Best of all, they're comfortable and have zero break-in period thanks to their seamlessly knit design. 
Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Rothy's are available in a wide array of colors and patterns. Find your perfect pair at rothys.com slash switch. Astrology is as old as civilization itself. And today, it's easier to access than ever before thanks to the internet and smartphones. This week on Throughline, how astrology almost went extinct and made a remarkable comeback. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. This is a song about Democrats. We gotta go back to the day. About a couple hundred years ago, the Democrats all had slaves. Gene. Shireen. Code Switch. What on earth are we listening to? That is a song by El Gringo. That's his, uh, his nom de whatever. <laughs> and it's obviously playing on this idea that Democrats are the party of racism. First off, thank you for putting this terrible song in all of our heads. You're quite welcome. Yeah, it's the party of the KKK. And second, as we mentioned before the break, African-Americans supported the Republican Party in the decades after emancipation. Mm -hmm. It was the party of Lincoln and Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. But big caveat, most black people couldn't actually vote because... Racism. Because racism. And sexism. Yes. Black women couldn't vote until 1920. Right. That's a big, big caveat, too. And it wasn't like the Republican Party was a comfortable, hospitable place for black voters. Plenty of Republicans didn't want black people in their party either. But since the other party, the aforementioned party of the KKK, (laughs) the Democrats, uh, they, you know, they were the vehicle of Southern segregationists. So the relatively small number of black folks who could cast a ballot When they did vote, they voted for the GOP. But that all starts to change during the Great Depression. Hmm. A tenth of the population of the United States we formed as a race over a sixth of the unemployed. One out of every four of us was on relief. In vain, we sought for something to restore our confidence, our hope, our courage. Without jobs, we had no money. As that New Deal propaganda newsreel makes clear, black folks were hit especially hard by the Great Depression. In 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat from New York, runs for president and wins. But he does so with basically no black support. So African-Americans who can vote are suspicious of him. Leah wright Rigor is a professor of public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's a Democrat. You know, he talks like a Democrat. But, you know, the most important thing is that the Democratic Party, in a lot of people's eyes, still has this uh, baggage, this weight of being anti-black. Um, and so this plays out in voting tallies. Oh, and Lee is also the author of a book about the history of black people in the GOP called The Loneliness of the Black Republican. Good title. I know. Again, should we steal it for the episode? Should... <laughs> 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 so anyway, after black folks had this initial side-eyeing period towards FDR, some cracks start to show in the overwhelming black support for Republicans, at least at the local level. It's slow at first, in part because of the presence of Southern segregationists in the Democratic Party and the continuing presence of that. But Northern Democrats begin to realize that they can control party politics um, if they are willing to make alliances with African-Americans. It's important to mention that during this time, the Great Migration is in full swing Mm -hmm. and it's changing the complexion of cities in the North. Literally. So these local Democratic 
parties that these black northerners are dealing with are different in some ways than the openly racist Democrats they had to deal with in the South. Right. And so when FDR runs for election just four years later in 1936, the landscape for black folks looks different, like a lot different. We see a transformative shift where African-Americans overwhelmingly vote for the Democratic candidate. Um, It is stunning the level of support and the kind of switch that happens. I mean, it's something that we really do not see in American political history. And this is in part because of, you know, the, the significance and really the impact of the New Deal. At Colonial Park in Harlem, as in many other congested areas, WPA workers have constructed a huge swimming pool and are now completing a bathhouse which will accommodate 4,100 persons. And so we see that the New Deal programs, many of them are colorblind. And so in being colorblind, African-Americans feel the economic benefits and incentives of the New Deal programs and policies. Under Roosevelt, the Democrats start to become the party of interventionist federal government. This idea of the transformation in the social welfare state and the emergence of a social safety net, African-Americans do benefit from this. So Roosevelt's administration is starting to spend serious money to stimulate the dire economy. It starts building infrastructure like bridges and hospitals, a lot of which are in black neighborhoods. And a few of those big construction programs even have quotas that require that they hire a certain amount of black workers because otherwise unions and white folks would have revolted. Leah says that Eleanor Roosevelt was doing things. She was out there making sort of symbolic, if limited, gestures towards civil rights. Um, Roosevelt himself was hiring black people in symbolic positions to his administration. Hmm. Now, is the New Deal perfect? Absolutely not. There are some ways it's discriminatory. There are some ways that it's implicitly, you know, biased. There are other ways where it is explicitly racist. But in terms of kind of material benefits across the board, it is transformative. And we should be clear here that Roosevelt was not some anti-racist. He was slow-walking anti-lynching legislation, for example. He still had to play nice with his fellow Democrats from the South. So there was all sorts of racist stuff baked into his New Deal policy. So, like, when Social Security was enacted, agricultural workers, domestic workers, they were ineligible, which effectively ruled out two-thirds of all Black workers in the United States from Social Security benefits. And then, of course, there was the Federal Housing Administration, which was created under the New Deal, and we talk about a lot on the show, because it went a long way to entrenching residential segregation in the U.S. Hashtag housing segregation in everything. Always. (laughs) So even though Black folks are seeing material benefits from these so-called colorblind Democratic policies, the Democrats are still doing a ton of racist-ish. Yes, of course, of course. And at this point, Leah says Black folks are still registering as Republicans. But 1936, Black folks start to really vote in national elections for Democrats. And as more Black folks start to switch sides in 1936, Republicans aren't really, like, pressed to keep Black folks in the party fold. They're not really offering up their own alternatives, you know, to Black voters. Instead, Leah says the GOP was just making token gestures, like having Black celebrities, like Jesse Owens, the track star, and Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion, go to Black neighborhoods. But that's pretty much it. But some members of the GOP were really concerned about the Black people who were leaving. So they called up Ralph Bunch. Ralph Bunch, who would go on to become the first African-American to win the Nobel Prize in 1950, he was a complicated dude with a complicated legacy. But in 1939, 
he's one of the most respected political thinkers in the country, black or otherwise. And officials in the GOP want him to look into what the party might need to do to win back black voters who are starting to leak away. And Bunch is like, yeah, 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 I'll do it. But on the condition that when I'm done, you make my findings public. And the Republicans are like, bet. Or, you know, <laughs> whatever white people in 1939 said when they meant bet. Say, Mac, sounds like a square deal. That's out of sight. <laughs> That's on the beam. <laughs> Wait, what? I have no idea. Jess, our producer, uh, Googled old-timey sayings. And this was apparently a thing they used to say back in the day. Anyway, to research this report, Bunch goes all around the country talking to black folks and just asking them their feelings about both parties and the state of the country. And after his fact-finding mission, he eventually comes back with a damning 137-page report about the realities of racism in the United States. Single-spaced. Single-spaced. <laughs> Single-spaced. Very, very small print. And he asserts that, you know, while the Democrats are not doing nearly enough to combat these huge racial problems in America— and in some cases, you know, they're making them worse. The Republicans are somehow doing even less. So, in fact, in order to win back black voters, the Republican Party would need to ensure policies and programs that, you know, outpace, that are bigger than those offered by the Democratic Party. So Bunch points to things like health care, universal health care, points to things like jobs. And those are all ideas that would actually have a hard time passing today, let alone in 1939. And remember, while the Democrats are sort of slowly and cautiously embracing some civil rights stuff, the Republican Party is going after those conservative whites who don't like that shift. And meanwhile, Bunch finds that black people are irritated that the black Republicans out there who do have positions in the Republican Party are not saying anything about racism. They're not speaking out because they don't want to jeopardize their jobs. Bunch tells them, basically, you can't have it both ways. You can't try to keep black people in the party and keep playing footsie with all these conservative white folks who hate black people. And the Republican Party first goes back and forth and says, you know, some of these ideas are too radical. Can you tone them down? And Bunch says, sure. And he tones them down. And then, you know, the Republican Party passes a resolution in support of Bunch's report and then never releases it. So in one of the many pivotal moments between the erstwhile party of Lincoln and black voters, the GOP buries Bunch's report. In part because they do not want the part that is critical about the Republican Party to be made public. And they certainly don't want you know, these ideas about the party actually having to be uh, you know, more aggressive than the Democrats on, on economics and on race. Uh, they don't want those things out there. Uh, it would actually alienate the party's, you know, increasing interest in winning over Southern voters. Hmm. What would have happened to the Republicans and to the United States had they followed Bunch's recommendations, I wonder? Ooh. Imagine what the world would be like. One of the arguments a lot of Black folks were making, even back then, was that the Republicans were taking Black folks for granted. Which is exactly what you hear all the time about the Democratic establishment today. Yeah, it's like literally the same argument. And Leah said back then, black newspaper columnists and political thinkers were arguing that there are real material consequences for having your vote counted on by one party. So if the parties had to fight for black votes, they might actually be more intentional in their policies toward helping black people. Right. And in the 1950s, 
Leah said one of the loudest proponents of this idea, that black folks shouldn't be taken for granted, that they should be fought over by both parties, was a black icon named Jackie Robinson. I don't think you realize down here in Birmingham what you mean to us up there in New York. And I don't think that white Americans understand what Birmingham means to all of us throughout this country. We never remember Jackie Robinson as this political figure, even though he is highly political uh, and and very much a part of, you know, uh, these transformations, these American political transformations that are happening in this era. And I think the conscience of America is beginning to awaken. So by the 1950s, Jackie Robinson is retired from baseball. He's one of the most revered figures in America, especially black America. He's writing this widely syndicated newspaper column, and he's pretty outspoken on civil rights. And it was around this time that Jackie Robinson struck up this weird friendship with Richard Nixon, of all people. I wonder if they played tennis. (laughs) That was a weird image. Uh, But their friendship would ultimately be doomed, and they would have this falling out that in a lot of ways would parallel the way that black folks more broadly would fall out with the Republican Party. I could see how they would meet each other or get to know each other. They're both from Southern California, which is not too far away from the studios I'm talking to you from right now. And Shireen, that's where their friendship started. They were probably arguing over where the best tacos were. Um, they, <laughs> they met at this fancy party and realized that they both grew up near each other. And Shireen, according to a biography of Jackie Robinson by Arnold Rampersad, it turns out they had other stuff in common. Robinson hated communism. Well, so did Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was a big sports fan who had been following Jackie Robinson's career. So they became pen pals, basically. They started writing letters to each other a whole lot. And this is at the time when Nixon is vice president under Eisenhower. Yep. And so Robinson was becoming more and more politically outspoken on civil rights. And so when the 1960 election rolls around, Nixon is now the Republican nominee for president. And his opponent is John F. Kennedy, who Jackie Robinson doesn't really like. Jackie Robinson met Kennedy once, and JFK apparently told Robinson that he didn't actually know any black people in real life. Well, that story checks out. Robinson thought that JFK was too wishy-washy on civil rights, and he kind of had a point. Like, Kennedy was giving all these signals to Southerners that he wasn't going to go that hard on civil rights. He had this secret meeting with white Southern Democrats that a lot of people just assumed meant that he had struck a deal with them, that he would be moderate on matters of race if they supported him. And then he picked Lyndon Johnson, who was from Texas, to be his running mate. And Robinson was like, see, this is why I can't bang with this dude. I don't like him at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Lyndon Johnson, if you know anything about him, you know that he loves saying the N-word in his private life. He loved him some N-word. N-word, 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 all the time, in a Texas accent. <laughs> but so did, uh, so did Jackie Robinson's old buddy Richard Nixon, just in a Southern California accent. Uh, Robinson th- <laughs> but Robinson thought that Nixon might be kind of persuadable because sometimes he said things that were not terrible about race. Ladies and gentlemen, the vice president of the United States, Richard M. Nixon. The whole world is watching us. When we fail to grant equality to all, that makes news, bad news for America all over the world. It's, it's very rare that President Nixon's calls for equality are remembered. We mostly talk about his dog whistles and his more blatant bigotry. Like you said, he also liked using the N-word, railing against Jewish people. It was a campaign full of N-word lovers, um, by which I mean people who like saying the N-word. <laughs> so bad. And so Robinson goes out to black communities to campaign for his boy Richard full-time. This is Jackie Robinson, a race-conscious black Republican making the case for why his party will uplift black Americans. But then 
there's this weird turning point in their friendship. So just before the election, Martin Luther King, maybe you've heard of him, gets arrested in Georgia while demonstrating. And Jackie Robinson is calling on his boy Richard Nixon to just give Martin Luther King a call in jail, just as a gesture of support for the civil rights movement. And Robinson has this tense meeting with Richard Nixon and is pleading for him just to say something, to do anything in support of King. And Mm -hmm. Nixon is like, no, I want to do that. That would be grandstanding. So he doesn't touch it. Jackie Robinson was frustrated and basically told Nixon that he didn't deserve to win the presidency. And he left this meeting with Nixon with tears in his eyes. Hmm. But Jackie Robinson still kept campaigning for Nixon in 1960. Hmm. Jackie Robinson was this famously stubborn person. So apparently, like, when he dug in his heels, he dug in his heels. Now, on the other side of the ballot, John F. Kennedy did make a phone call after that arrest in Georgia to Martin Luther King's pregnant wife, Coretta. Kennedy told her to call him if she needed anything. And almost immediately, the story of that phone call was all over the black press. And all those black folks who like Jackie Robinson, who have been kind of skeptical of Kennedy, started to like him. And when Martin Luther King got out of jail, he said himself... No Republican had reached out to him. Ha. And now we know that Nixon lost that election. Just barely, but he lost that election. Just barely. In a bunch of big states, it was massive black turnout for Kennedy that pushed him over the top. And in backing Nixon, Jackie Robinson, who was, again, legendarily stubborn, found himself in the position of having very publicly backed the wrong horse. But it hurt Jackie Robinson because he felt that Nixon's mishandling of the King stuff and civil rights in general was bad for the GOP and bad for black folks. Seems that way. So by 1964, Lyndon Johnson, the same Texan who Jackie Robinson was really suspicious of, had assumed the presidency after Kennedy's assassination. And Lyndon Johnson, who was pressured by black organizers and activists, takes up the mantle of civil rights in a serious and sustained way, to everybody's surprise. And should we defeat every enemy, and should we double our wealth and conquer the stars, and still be unequal to this issue, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. So the Democratic Party is fully, rancorously becoming the party of civil rights whether white folks in the Democratic Party like it or not. Right. The Civil Rights Act was signed by N-word saying (laughs) President Lyndon Johnson, which was the biggest win for black Americans since Reconstruction. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. And just to be clear, just as there were Democrats who were opposed to the civil rights bill that was on the table, there were Republicans who supported that same bill and who were ultimately critical for it passing. And this is something that Republicans today like to talk about a lot. Like they say, the GOP can't be racist because a higher percentage of Republicans in Congress voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 than did Democrats. But Leah says that when you look at the Civil Rights Act more closely, What mattered in the breakdown wasn't party, it was region. Uh, Because almost no Southerners, Republican or Democrat, voted in favor of that bill. Barry Goldwater, a conservative senator from Arizona, and the Republican Party's presumptive nominee for the election that same year, talked a lot about how he agonized over his vote. But in the end, 
he voted against it. And that vote came just a week or so before the Republican presidential convention. Barry Goldwater, who makes the argument that, in fact, the 1964 Civil Rights Act is unconstitutional. Again, here's Harvard University's Lear Wright Rigor. Goldwater becomes the party's standard bearer. His ideas become one with the Republican Party in the eyes of African-American voters. So it's a watershed moment because it's the moment where African-Americans just completely exit the Republican Party. Now... Goldwater always denied being a segregationist. Even as avowed Democratic segregationists like Strom Thurmond were literally switching parties to back Goldwater. You know, Goldwater liked to say, I used to be a member of the NAACP back in Arizona. He said his platform was not about segregation, it was about states' rights. But he would do campaign events with his surrogates in the South with Confederate flags waving behind them. Just a decade before, Republicans were apathetic about keeping black people in the fold. But by 1964, they're actively antagonizing black people. And pushing the black people who want to stay in the party out. 1964 Republican National Convention comes. Jackie Robinson is there, along with several other uh, black delegates and alternatives. Very few about 1% of all delegates at this conference. Um, lowest that the Republican Party had seen since African-Americans had started becoming uh, delegates to, to the convention. And the black delegates who were at that convention, they were in physical danger. So they are being called racial slurs. One delegate has uh, his suit set on fire uh, by a Goldwater delegate, and it is representative of a significant shift happening in the party. Outside of the convention, 50,000 people were protesting Barry Goldwater. And one of them is Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson goes right out with the protesters and is marching along with them. I mean, he compares the atmosphere at the convention to uh, Hitler's Germany and says, this is not the Republican Party. This is pseudo-conservatism. This is dangerous. This is violent. But Robinson also makes the decision that he is going to start, you know, Black Republicans for Johnson, and that he is going to campaign hard as hell for Lyndon Johnson's election, and that any Republican, any Black person that supports Goldwater will be seen as a sellout or a traitor. Sellout, traitor, I bet Uncle Tom was thrown around. It sounds like there was a brief moment in the 40s and 50s when Black voters really were up for grabs for either of the parties. But in the mid-60s, we really start seeing this demographic makeup of the Democrats and Republicans of today crystallize. Yeah, I mean, just the generation before, the Democratic Party was the party of the South, right? It was Southern conservatives. But by 1964, most Black people who could vote pulled the lever for that same party. And that November, Goldwater only got 6% of the Black vote. By 1968, Jackie Robinson's old pen pal, Richard Nixon, he's running for president again. And this time, he's going after voters in the South, in the Southwest, and in the suburbs. The same voters who were excited by Barry Goldwater and who didn't really like all those changes from the Civil Rights Revolution. So Nixon is talking about federal overreach in local politics. He's talking about law and order in response to riots in inner cities. Yeah, it's like an orchestra of dog whistles. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jackie Robinson is out here, and he's still a Republican, and he's watching his old buddy sort of do this dog whistling, and he is pissed. When Richard Nixon gets the nomination, 
Jackie Robinson quits the Republican Party, marches on down to City Hall and changes his political affiliation to an independent. So he's been holding out for a long ass time. But Jackie Robinson finally left the GOP. And when Nixon won the White House in 1968, his law and order silent majority strategy worked. Leah said that Jackie Robinson, who was by this point in frail health, he was still writing these impassioned, sometimes angry letters to his old friend, trying to get him to do the right thing on civil rights. But Leah said at this point, though, their communication was mostly one sided. Robinson didn't have much political clout left. And Nixon, who had basically given up any pretense of caring about any voters who weren't white folks, was basically no longer responding. You know, Shireen, Hmm. the strategy of appealing to white voters by using dog whistles to appeal to their racial resentment, you know, is often called the Southern strategy. But Leah Wright-Rigore says that's kind of a misnomer because, for starters, it worked all over the United States. And that playbook was attempted by Goldwater and Nixon, but it was really perfected by Ronald Reagan. Reagan ran for president in 1980, and he talked a lot about states' rights, which voters understood to mean, you know, support against federally mandated policies like busing to integrate schools. Ronald Reagan is also the president who popularized the myth of the welfare queen. Mm -hmm. And we can't forget that he's the one who really took President Nixon's war on drugs to the next level. And President Reagan on that campaign trail in 1980 said he wanted to, quote, make America great again. For those who've abandoned hope, we'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. And tellingly, it's in the Reagan years and beyond that we really start to see the South go reliably red in presidential elections. And all this signaling to white people is how we eventually get to a 90 percent white Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. And now, you know, the GOP is obviously the party of Donald Trump, who is making appeals to that same universe of white racial resentment. But he's not really trying to camouflage it. Right. Post-civil rights... Racism wasn't as overt in Republican politics on the national stage. There were unspoken rules about what you could say and what you couldn't say. But these days, in those circles, calls for equity are often written off as political correctness. You know, it feels like the PC police get more scrutiny than the actual police. (laughs) (laughs) And it's in those same circles where you often hear the question we started this episode off with. How can people think Republicans are racist when Democrats were the party of the KKK? You know, that's not even a question for black folks. It's a question aimed at the Republican Party, which, as you said, is 90 percent white. It's to make them feel better. Because most black voters already know this. Black voters have always been pragmatic. They've never had perfect anti-racist choices on either side of the aisle. After emancipation, when Republicans were the best mechanism for advancing the civil rights of black people, black people voted Republican. In the 1960s, when the Democratic Party was the best vessel to advance the civil rights revolution, Black people voted for Democrats. Let's not overthink it. All right, y'all, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow Shireen at Radio Mirage. That's the word radio and the word Mirage all mashed together. Yep. You can follow me at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One, preferably, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check the description where there's a link to a playlist of some of our best episodes about black history. Though hopefully you listen even when it ain't February. Black history is all year long, y'all. On codeswitch it is. Yes. Yes. 
This episode was produced by Jess Kung and Sammy Yenigan. It was also edited by Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Leah Danella, L.A. Johnson, Adrian Florido, and Steve Drummond. Our interns are Diane Lugo and Isabella Rosario. And a big, big shout out to our new assistant editor, Natalie Escobar. Hey, welcome, homie. <laughs> Let's do some epic stuff. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This from NPR. And on our latest episode, how Julia Hartz and her husband Kevin launched their ticketing platform, Eventbrite, from a closet in a San Francisco warehouse, and today, manage events in 170 countries around the world. Listen now. <laughs> 